What is the most expensive thing you own? Oh, that's good. Hey, my name's Ben. We're so glad that you're here today. We are continuing our Family Feud message series, and here's the whole point. Your family is worth fighting for. Your family is worth fighting for. Your family is worth fighting for. Now today, we're going to talk through a story in your Bible that many of you probably don't even know is in your Bible. And by the way, if you don't read your Bible because you don't believe it's true or you think that somehow if you read it and get emotionally caught up, then you're going to turn into one of those crazy Christians you see on TV. Let me just challenge you that uh, your Bible, uh, if you don't own one, we'll be glad to help you. Just put on your connect card. I don't have a Bible. Give me one. We'll get you one. But your Bible contains in it stories that are so relevant to life. And whether or not you believe in the God behind the story like I do, or whether or not you believe Jesus is the one and only Son of God, and He paves the way for us to have a connection to God, if you don't believe all that stuff, you can still benefit from reading your Bible. I just want to challenge you, because today's story is one of those powerful stories in the Bible that's going to show you, I believe, so much about life. I think it's going to be very relevant for you. I think it's going to be relevant. If you don't, like, can't make immediate application in your life right now, you know somebody very well, you know their situation well enough, and it's going to apply to them. And so... Listen today, not just to the story, but listen today to the God behind the story who is trying to use this story in your life in the same way that he tries to use the events of the story in the lives of the people that we're going to talk about, okay? With that said, let me, let, me, let me reflect a little bit on something that's been going through my mind in this entire series before we jump into our story. I, uh, I, I have four kids. Many, many of you know, those of you that know my family, um, you, you, by the way, you guys treat my family so well. Thank, thank you for that. Um, I have four kids, and when each one was born, I, I remember being, and, and this is going to make me like, uh, not sound like the, the manly man that I want you to think that I am, maybe, but I remember just being so full of love, um, this mushy, gushy emotion of, I don't know how I can love this thing any more than I do. I mean, literally having almost a tangible sense of what love must feel like. And in those moments after our first child and second child and third child and fourth child was born and and Jill was, you know, legitimately tired, and I was holding that child in my hand. I remember thinking, this is really great. This is amazing. And I made all kinds of promises to myself and to God and to that child about what I wanted their experience to be like. And, you know, to a large degree, it's gone okay, um, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Um, but just that overwhelming sense of love. And, th and then it, it hit me at some point, um, and I'm not sure which child it was. I'd like to tell you where I was, and, but... I, but at some point it hit me, could my, could my father have loved me to the same degree that I love my child? Is it possible? There's, there's, there's a different quality of experience between a parent's love for his child or her child and, and the child's love back to the parent's. And that's okay. Parents are all okay with that, with that kind of gap in the quality and in the understanding and in the depth and the experience of the love. And something happens when you have your own kids, and, and you begin to understand just how precious this love relationship in the family is. And it spans cultures, it spans time, it spans religion, it spans socioeconomic level. That love between a parent and his child or her child 
And, and you get some sense, I bet all of you have had it to some degree. Even if you don't have a kid, you have a niece, a nephew, somebody, that, you know, a close friend. that You realize that this thing is fragile. It's fragile. And, and, and it's precious, and it's fragile, and, and, and it's going to require some real effort to walk in that desire that you have. And on top of that, there's layered this kind of disposable world that we live in, maybe now more than any other time. I don't know, I didn't live in other times, but when you read about folks that understood the past and they compare it to now, and, and, and you look at your own life and, and the relationships that you used to have but you don't have anymore, just think about that for a second. You had an old roommate, some of you, like in college, and you don't even talk to that person anymore. You had a neighbor you were really close to, but now a few decades later or a decade later or five years later or a year later, you you don't even talk about them. No, you're not even talking about them. You don't even think about them anymore. And you have ex-roommates, and some of us have an ex-spouse and ex-neighbors, and they don't even cross our path, let alone cross our mind. And it breaks my heart, the reality that goes on in this world as it relates to our topic today, that sometimes family falls into that ex-category. And there are moments in, in, in my role as pastoring when just the weight of how precious families in our church are kind of sits on me. And that, that happened this week in a, in a uh, kind of a profound way. It wasn't a particular moment, it wasn't a particular catalyzing event. It just, maybe in prayer, maybe because I've been submersing myself so much into this topic over the last few months for you guys and for myself, it just hit me that what we have the opportunity to do in our church is to talk about one of the most special, beautiful, wonderful, life-giving dynamics that you're ever going to experience, and that is your family. And at the same time, it is fragile and difficult and fraught with landmines and incredibly painful for a lot of us, for most all of us. I don't know how you contemplate how God wants to speak into that stuff and what he has to say for you, but when you open the pages of your Bible, the stories of the families in the Bible aren't fairy tale stories where the heroes are always good and the bad guys are always bad, and it's pretty simple to get the thrust of the movement of the story. And once you get caught up in the general thrust of the movement, without even knowing the details, you know where it's going to go because it's kind of flat. When you, when you read the stories of the families in your Bible, they have all the range of emotions and possibilities and potentialities that you yourself have and have experienced and have seen up close and personal. And today's story is a story about King David and his son, Absalom. Now, this story particularly that we're going to look at spans about five, six chapters in your Bible. We I simply can't in the time constraints we have to literally read every passage for you. But in just a moment, we're going to read one verse from the middle of the story. But I want you to know that I'm not building a message on one verse, so I'm, I'm going to kind of tell you the story. All right? If you haven't heard this story, um, man, it's fascinating. And it's tragic. It's tragic because it deals with this specialness called family. And it deals with it in the most honest and direct ways about the, the fragile nature of this thing and the challenge of keeping family the way God meant for it to be. So, so here's the basic story. In about 1010, 
B.C., about a thousand years before Jesus, uh, David was sitting on the throne of Israel. And because in that culture, at that time, kings had multiple wives, uh, he had a very large family. Multiple wives, different children by different women. And so they shared the same father, but they had different moms. And so they were brothers and sisters, but often the wives and their children lived in one house and a different wife and her children lived in another house. And David's oldest son was named Amnon. Amnon was heir to the throne. And the Bible tells us that, uh, that David's relationship with Amnon was somewhat special, like you might imagine. It was special in the sense that he was heir to the throne. It was special in the sense that David was investing in him. It was special in the sense that he lived in the main palace with his father. And, and all the rights and privileges that were bestowed upon David would one day be pushed onto Amnon. And so he was the, the heir apparent, literally, but also just in the way he was treated. And David loved Amnon. Like, like every father loves his children, his sons and his daughters. But, but even more so because there was the sense of responsibility that beyond me, this relationship is going to have impact on the whole kingdom. And David, David loved Amnon. And, and David wanted nothing more than for Amnon to prosper and to, and to do well. Beyond Amnon, David had other sons and daughters, many, many, many. We're going to focus on one born by a different woman than Amnon's mom. His name is Absalom. And Absalom was an heir to the throne. And while he didn't have all the special acknowledgement from his father David that he was going to be the one in charge, and he didn't get all the special treatment, Absalom had, the Bible describes in this way, that he was just a handsome man, and like a, a manly man and rugged and and his hair was long, and, 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 and the Bible even describes that he'd get an annual haircut, and they would weigh the hair, and people would be like, whoa, this guy can grow some hair. And um, he just had a lot, a lot of favor with people, a lot of favor. And besides sons, uh, David had some daughters. Uh, one daughter, Absalom's sister by the same mother, her name was Tamar, Tamar. And the Bible says this strange family dynamic happened that Amnon, the oldest son, fell in love, was smitten by, was taken with Absalom's sister, his half-sister, or not half-sister technically, but same dad, so not half-sister, but different household sister, Tamar. Amnon fell in love with Tamar, Absalom's sister. Now, now this was odd and strange in some regards. I mean, the kind of crossing taboo kinds of lines. And Tamar doesn't know that she has caught the eye of Amnon. And Amnon, the Bible describes his love for her, that he just longed for her. I mean, it's on the deepest levels, he could not function. And his whole life was wrecked because of his smittenness with Tamar. And obviously, he couldn't do anything about it. It was against the law. It was against morality. It was shameful to the household. So one day, Amnon pretends to be sick. This is found in your Bible in 2 Samuel 13. Amnon pretends to be sick, and he says to his dad, Dad, I'm sick. Do you think you could call Tamar over to cook for me my favorite meal? And David's like, yeah, you don't have to ask me for that. Um, sure, she can, she, can help, she can help that way. 
So, so Tamar comes over and begins to fix this great meal. And while she's cooking, Amnon is watching her. And his desire is growing. Just, you know, it is what it is. And at some point, he gets so kind of inflamed in the thing that he sends everybody else out of the house. And it's just the two of them. And he says to Tamar, come over here close to my bed and feed me that food. And when she gets close, he grabs hold of her. And it's apparent what his intentions are. And he has every intention of going all the way through with all the things that he's been contemplating, thinking about. And she says to him, do not do this um, despicable thing. Don't do it. You're going to regret it. And the Bible says that he burned with lust for her. And he does it. Beyond her will, forces her, and he does the thing. And she knows that if he does the thing, what's going to happen is a shame and reproach is going to come on her. And because he's heir apparent, it's going to be much less for him. And she's going to be a cast out. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, when the Bible talks about this story, David's family, it says that Amnon's hatred of Tamar was greater than the love he felt for her just moments before. Almost instantaneous. And he wanted her out of his sight. He wanted her gone. And that's exactly what happened. She was, she was banished. And the Bible tells us that in this family that is central to the Bible story, that this shadow of shame and dysfunction, an absence of love and affirmation, falls upon the house of David. And David hears about it. Everybody's talking about it. And David does nothing. He does nothing. He can't, for whatever reason, bring himself to deal with it. And so this, this, this event and its implications and the splintering of the family is just there. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story in just a moment, but can I tell you something I've observed? That it doesn't matter how dysfunctional a family is. It doesn't matter how long the disconnect has been going on. It doesn't matter how long ago the event was that catalyzed the hard feelings. There's a desire in every dad to connect with his children. There's a desire in every mom to connect with her children. It doesn't matter if they're 2 years old, 20 years old, or 50 years old. It doesn't matter how much water is under the bridge. It doesn't matter how much they pretend like they don't want to connect and set up walls and divide and, and keep at bay people. There is, at the heart level, a desire to have authentic connection with their sons. And, but it doesn't just go from parents to their kids. It goes from kids right back to the parents. There's a desire in every child to have authentic, loving, meaningful real, honest connection, affection, and love for his or her parent. It's just there. And it never goes away. Never goes away. It gets covered over by shameful events and hurt feelings and division in the household and all kinds of things that you and I could fill in the gaps on what causes those experiences, experiences just like you've had maybe. Somebody you know has had? 
But at the root, in the heart of the heart, there is this desire. God put it in families, that desire. When the fall of humanity happened back in Genesis chapter 3, it affected every area of life. But in every area of life, there was also a kernel of the thing that God originally created. And this desire we have in families to have authentic and real connection, it never, never goes away. It's powerful. Sometimes it's not powerful enough in and of itself to actually close the gap and bring people who have been separated, relationships that have been splintered, damage that has been done. Sometimes it's not powerful enough in and of itself, that desire you have and I have and everybody has, to actually close that gap. And our story with David and Amnon and Absalom and Tamar, the dysfunction that had been happening in that house that brought itself to that event with Tamar and Amnon, it is going to have broad-reaching implications. When Absalom hears what happened to his sister Tamar, he's livid. He is angry on the deepest level. He is going in his mind to be a champion of justice, and not just justice in its, you know, ethereal neutral sense, Justice on the most personal level. I'm going to avenge, I'm going to revenge for my sister. And he appeals to his father, David. And David, for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't tell us what's going on in his heart and his mind. David can't bring himself to deal with Amnon. And amnity between Amnon and Absalom grows. Each of them have not only a household because they're the king's son, they have men who follow them, kind of like uh, personal guards, if you will, a small miniature army for each of them. And it, the, the battle between these two brothers is fierce. And there's conflict, and the whole kingdom is talking about it. And all the while, one of David's main men, the general by the name of Joab, is watching this dynamic. And he knows... He knows that David's heart longs for his kids, and the whole issue is just eating David alive, and yet David doesn't know or can't bring himself to do what he knows. For whatever reason, David doesn't engage. And so Absalom, in, in a fit of rage, murders his brother Amnon. And because he did that, he has to flee the capital city. And he's on the run. And years pass. David the king watches what Absalom does, just as he watched what Amnon does. And David the king does nothing. He doesn't pursue Absalom. He's almost as if the pain of the event has paralyzed him. And he doesn't know what to do. Years pass. And Joab is watching this. David's right-hand man, Joab, is watching this. The general of the armies is watching this. And he sees his king just disintegrating into the shell of the powerful man that he was because of these family dynamics. So Joab concocts a plan, and he goes and finds a woman, and he says to this woman, let's make up a story. David likes stories. Stories get 
get to David's heart. Let's make up a story about, a, a, about your sons that don't exist. Um, and, and one kills the other. And now everybody wants to kill the one that killed the other. But if they kill him, you're left with no one. And let's appeal to the king to pardon him. So the woman, for whatever reason, she takes Joab's advice because he has a lot of authority potentially or he has the ability to bless her life. I don't know. But she goes and she appeals to the king and says, I want you to pardon my son. Here's the story. One killed the other. Now everybody wants to kill the one. But if they kill the one, I'm left with nothing. And I'd rather have one than none. And David says, absolutely, your son's pardoned. And she presses on and she says, no, listen, listen. I, I can say they're pardoned. But the king finally says to her, if anybody touches a hair on your son's head, I'll kill them. And then she looks at the king and she says, oh, king. May the Lord live forever, but really, isn't this your story? Isn't this really your story? And so the king looks at the woman and he says, is Joab behind this? I think Joab's behind this. I think, I think Joab put you up to this. He's like, yes, yes, Joab put me up to this. But, but, but your family needs your attention, is, is the impact of, of her words. So D- David calls for Absalom. Calls him back. And he says, he says to Joab, go get my son, bring him back into the capital city. But then he does this strange thing. He says, look, I want him back. I want him to know I want him back, but I don't want him to see me. So bring him back, put him in his own house, back in his old house, but he can't see my face. So you get this strange mixture of, I want to engage. I miss my son, and oh, one is better than none. And, and yet I can't bring myself to go all the way there. And so a year passes. Another year passes, and Absalom keeps saying to Joab, get me an audience with the king. Get me an audience with the king. And the keep, keep, king keeps saying, David keeps saying, I don't want to see my son. I don't want to see my son. He's torn. He's torn. The pain, the, the challenge, it's, it's paralyzed him, and he can't move forward. I don't want to see my son. I don't want to see my son. And internally, he's saying, I, I long for my son. This brokenness can't last. It's, it's eating me alive, and Joab's watching all of this. It turns out Absalom's house is right next to, to Joab's house. In the middle of the night, Absalom has his men burn the fields at Joab's house. And Joab shows up and says, why did you burn my field? He said, get me an audience with my dad. Whatever it takes me to get your attention. And so this kid, in the middle of this brokenness, he's acting out in all kinds of strange and goofy ways. This anger, this event that catalyzed his anger against his brother and has created friction and difficulty in the entire family. And everywhere you look, there's evidence of dysfunction and pain and, and, and anger and a lack of forgiveness and healing. And, and it's ugly. And it's real. I'd love to tell you that the story gets great. Before I bring you the conclusion of the story, I wanted to take you to that one verse in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14, 2 Samuel 14, 14. This is the woman talking to David when she's driving home the point of what's really going on in her makeup story, but in David's real story. She says these words. Like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be recovered, so we must die. But that's not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. In the middle of the dysfunction of David's family, the same David that wrote two-thirds of the book of Psalms, that talk about God's heart for people, God's heart for David, God's heart in the world, 
lifts us up in song. We, a lot of our songs at the root come from the book that David wrote 3,000 years ago. That guy, David. The one that the Bible says of David, that he was a man after God's own heart. The David who killed Goliath, who killed the lion and the bear when he was a shepherd. The one who it was said of him that men look on the outside, but God looks at the heart and chose David above his stronger and older and wiser brothers to be the king of Israel. That David. The woman looks at him and says, here's what happens. Left alone, we're like a cup of water spilled out. Can't put it back. You never get it all back in the cup. But here's what God's heart on the matter is. That he doesn't want the outcast to remain outcast. He doesn't want those rejected to remain rejected. God's heart on the matter when it comes to family and this pain and these events and this ugliness is he doesn't want the banished person to remain banished from him. And God pursues people. He does it in the rest of your Old Testament. In your New Testament, he pursued all of us through the person of Jesus. At one point, Absalom becomes so just overcome with grief that his dad won't look at him that he says these words in verse four, chapter 14, verse 32. He says, if I'm guilty of anything that causes my father not to want to see me, let him put me to death. I just want to talk to my dad. But David doesn't see him. David, David won't meet with him. And in that rejection, Absalom's strong desire for his dad to connect, to have authentic, loving relationship in his home, in his heart, turns to rage and anger, like it does all the time. On the flip side of almost all anger at work in your family, there's a hurt. And the debate about whether or not the hurt is legitimate or not is an important debate, but that's what's there. There's a hurt. Sometimes it can be put into words, sometimes it can't. And his hurt becomes anger. And civil war breaks out in the capital city. And David doesn't want to kill his son, so David leaves the capital. And I won't tell you this because it's kind of R-rated, but you can read it in your Bible. Absalom comes up with a scheme to humiliate his father in that culture in the worst possible way, and he does it publicly. The level of anger and just frustration over the brokenness that cannot be resolved And the level of hurt and the level of feeling that it wasn't fair is so deep. And so he embarrasses his father. David, David is strong in the field. This is where he gained his notoriety. When it comes to field warfare, David is supreme. And David can best his son in a moment. But he gives strict orders. No matter what you do, do not touch a hair of my son's head. Do not touch a hair of my son's. The same guy that said, I won't look at him. He can't see me. I'll put him in the palace, but don't you you touch him. And you see this duplicity of emotion. Yes, I love you. No, I won't engage you. I will not let you be hurt, but I'm not going to reconcile. This goofiness of conflicting emotion. 
Now, by now, you should be able to translate between what was happening 3,000 years ago and what you've seen happen up close and personal. This conflicting emotion between parents and their kids and siblings, moms and dads together. This on-the-surface, goofy, topsy-turviness. Then on one level, it seems like all love and all willingness, and on the other level, it seems like the wall will never be surmounted. And in the battle, Absalom is riding his colt, and his hair is long and beautiful, and it gets caught in the trees, and he is dangling in the air as the colt leaves him. And some of David's soldiers walk up on him, and they know the king's order, so they call for Joab. When Joab shows up, Joab kills Absalom. They know it's terrible. They know the king said not to do it. Joab's going to put it to rest, taking care of this situation that has gripped the king's heart for too long. And then the Bible says that when David finds out, his words are, Absalom, oh Absalom, how I loved you. And I read this story and I think, how tragic. And yet I'm not sure it's any different than some of the stories I hear about us. Some of the times I've had in my own life. This hurt that always happens in family. Disappointment that always happens in family. You can't live together with humans without having disappointment. And this struggle with the longing that every father wants to connect with his children. Every child wants to connect with her parents. And yet the mixed signals that are everywhere present. And the refrain of this lady in the middle of the thing. Yeah, the glass has been tipped over. The water has spilled out. But here's God's heart in the middle of the thing. God doesn't want the outcast to remain outcast. God's heart is to close the gap. God's heart is reconciliation. And that simply speaks to the longing you already have. Somewhere down there, every dad, no matter how much the prodigal son embarrassed, every dad wants to reconnect. No matter how much the girl embarrassed and didn't obey and took advantage of, every mom wants to connect. And it perfectly matches up with the heart of our Heavenly Father who is establishing his family in this earth. And man, his family is full of ugliness. And yet somehow, when the glass gets tipped over and the water is everywhere and you can never get it all back in the cup, his heart, in an overarching way, over all the ugliness, communicates clearly, I long for you. I'll go find you. I'll fight for you. And the reason why our hearts can be black with sin and yet we can still have a relationship with our Heavenly Father is because He decided that He did not want the outcast to remain an outcast. And I'm telling you, in this heart that our Heavenly Father has for us is the secret to the longing every family has to be close, to connect to be honest about the spilled water, but at the same time, have an overarching heart. Contra David's experience, 
where he sends the mixed messages. Our Heavenly Father is clear. I'll fight for you. I'll pursue you. You wronged me. You took advantage of me. You embarrassed me. But I'll fight for you. And I'll feel the weight of closing the gap. Can I make you aware of something? Your family is worth fighting for, even if you think it's a losing battle. Some losing battles are worth having. Some losing battles are worth fighting. I think if you were to ask God if his pursuit of us was worth it, I think he'd say yes. And I think if you followed up with the question, does it always work? I think he'd be honest and say no. But it is worth it. So here's, here's one of my key points for us today, right here on the screens. Somehow we got to find a way to fight for the heart of our family in the same way that your heavenly father and mine fights for our hearts. Parents, you get, you get about 3,000 hours a year with your kids. Our church, we get them for about 40. Who has the biggest impact on them? You or us? It's you. It's you. Ours is cleaner. You take a shower before you come here. You kind of put on the church thing and you, you understand the expectations. Ours is somewhat anesthetized and we can control it better. So we're not overcome with the same level of dysfunction and hurt and disappointment, although it happens here too. Yours is not that. It's raw and it's every day and it's incessant and... Not only are there issues, but each person involved in the issue has issues, and the issue level complexity grows and grows and grows. And our own ability to know our own baggage we're bringing to the thing is very difficult because the capacity we all have for self-deception is very high. You get 3,000 hours a year. And what the enemy of your soul wants to have happen is for those 3,000 hours each year and each, each ending of each year that we're about to approach, you know, in just a matter of a few weeks, he wants it to leave you more empty, more splintered, more segmented, more wanting to connect and doing nothing about it. So here's something I'm learning in a new way. Before I speak in one of those ugly moments and one of those disconnecting moments, I need to be more clear in asking myself this question. Am I about to fight for or am I about to fight with? Am I about to fight for or am I about to fight with? Absalom thought he was fighting for Tamar, and I guess on some level he was. But he ended up fighting with his family in a way that brought destruction. I do the same thing. That in my frustration and my sense of justice, and I know I'm not alone in this. It's okay. I mean, you, you probably do it. If it, you don't do it, somebody's done it to you, but I bet you've done it too, even if you won't admit it. We fight with our families as opposed to fighting for them. And this is exactly opposite the heart of our Heavenly Father who says, I will fight. I'll go to the ends of the earth, but I'm not fighting with you. I'm not against you. I'm not opposed to you. I want you close to me. And I'm learning in a fresh way that the environment I want to create in my home is one where no matter how far people stray, they know that I want them back. Not just that they're welcomed, 
But I want, I long for that person back in my circle. This is the heart of our Heavenly Father. And can I, can I tell you something? 100 years from now, the only thing that will matter in the life of your child is his or her relationship with God. Whatever it is you're fighting about, it's going to be over. It's not going to matter. It's not going to have any lasting impact in eternity. But that child's heart for God, that's going to matter. And we Christian families have a powerful delusion on us, I think, at times, into thinking that if I invest in the 40 hours at church, I can be careless about the 3,000 hours I have at home, and somehow my child is going to get God's heart for him. My child is going to get God's heart for her. Let me make it perfectly clear. Your child learns the heart of his heavenly father by watching your heart, his earthly father. Is that, is that heavy? Yeah. And yet it's true. Their general approach to God is learned at home. And long before they can contemplate a God they can't see, they learn about that authority that structure, that shadowing, that umbrella from watching the very tangible dad that talks and interacts with her and him every day. That's why your family is worth fighting for. Because how you do family has impact not just here and now, it has impact in eternity. And it always will. And you can't change it. You, you can't run against the system that God's created. The very way he designed family to work was so that children would learn the general themes of his heart for the world. So sometimes God speaks very authoritatively against bad things. Clearly, that's in the scripture. But there is an umbrella of grace meant for the restoration of the individual that's being spoken harshly against, that is woven even in the very words chosen in the correction. And so even in the correction, children are to learn the heart of the Father is to bring the outcast close. The environment is always, no matter how far you stray, you are welcomed here, not just welcomed, I want you close to me. And that is incredibly hard. It is incredibly hard. And it is incredibly worth it. And whatever it is you're fighting about right now, the truth is in 10 years it probably won't matter. And in 20 years, it's very unlikely that it will matter. And in 100 years, when you and your child are both food for worms, it isn't going to matter at all. But the tone you set in your house that sets the boundaries through which all of us experience our Heavenly Father. That's going to matter. When we were starting this church, I sat down with a guy that has been a, a mentor to me. Um, I didn't know him long. I, mean, I still know him, but I hadn't known him very long. And God kind of brought our hearts together. And one day we were, we were sitting down having some coffee, and he said, Ben, 
you're getting ready to start this thing. What's on your heart? What do you see God doing in the life of your church? And I started just talking because I hadn't really put it on paper yet. It was very, very early. And, and, and a lot of you know this guy. His name is Steve Shogren. And uh, he used to pastor the big vineyard, and he had just a big impact on my life. And, and I just started talking. And at some point in the talking, I said, I think God will use our church to turn the hearts of fathers back to their kids, to restore marriages, and to help kids see just how much not only their heavenly father, but their earthly father loves that child. And as I started talking, tears kind of And then I looked at Steve, and he was crying, and he said, and if you know Steve, this is not unusual. He said, ooh, Holy Spirit's all over this. <laughs> and we just acknowledge that, 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 that whatever else God might do in this church, that would be a big part of it. You know why God wants to do that? Because he loves your family. He loves you, and he knows that deep down, no matter how big the pain, there is a desire in you to connect, and he doesn't want you to have the experience of another guy he loved by the name of David, who said, Absalom, Absalom, I love you. I wish I would have died and not you. I wouldn't let you look at me. I wouldn't talk to you, but now that it's all over, I wish I had been the one dying and not you. And God doesn't want that to be your experience. On a macro level, like in big major dysfunction, but I'm telling you, even on the micro level, he doesn't want that to be your experience. So he gave us the gift of his word to teach us, to show us, don't be stupid. Like David, who had so much going for him, was stupid. Fight for your family. And ask yourself, this thing we're fighting over, this thing that's created distance, 100 years from now, is it really going to matter? Really. Another thing that God did in the life of this church is we decided we were always going to do whatever we could to reach out to other people. And we have facing us now um, that unique time of the year where we can turn our time and attention not just to our family but to God's broader family. And we can bless people because God has blessed us in a way that will impact them not just temporarily, but literally for eternity. We can say to some of God's sons and daughters, we love you. We think you're investing, worth investing in. We think you're worth it. And we're willing to pursue you, to bless you, to invest in you. And so beginning this Sunday through the end of the year, we're going to open up a new category of giving in the life of this church called the 2013 Year-End Christmas Gift. And without shame and without any sense of uh, worrying about your feelings, I want to ask you to seriously pray about and then actually write a check to give to the 2013 Year-End Christmas Gift. And this year, we're going to fight for our family, even as we fight to bless other families. Every year, we've taken virtually every penny and put it outside of our doors. And that's legitimate, and we'll probably return right back to that next cycle. This year, we're going to take a portion of what we raise, and we're going to put it right outside our doors. 
30%. I'm going to tell you how we're going to break that up in just a moment. But we're going to take the rest, and we're going to make a major investment here. Pragmatically, we're doing it because we stretched really hard and long to get into this building, and we have not yet recouped. Some folks who made commitments didn't keep their commitments. Some folks legitimately had changes in their life, and they simply couldn't. We were hit with unexpected expenses, and so it is by the skin of our teeth, literally, financially, that as a church, we're coming to the end of the year, and that puts us in a very bad place beginning January 1 for next year. And so after a lot of prayer, after a lot of talk, and a lot of seeking leadership and wise counsel, this year's Christmas gift, we're going to make a major investment into Pastor James John in India. We're going to give 10% of every penny that comes in to his organization to build a well. We're going to literally put money into bricks and mortar to build a well that will not be a one-time gift, but literally for the next 10 years will bring them a sense of sustainability and health. Your one-time gift will have years of impact on them. And that environment with girls that have been disposed into the culture, being brought into their homes by Pastor James, John, and Sarah, we're going to build them a well, and we're going to build a security wall around those girls. Next to the orphanage, there is a rubber plant, and the rubber plant is expanding, and they're hiring all kinds of workers from all over, and James is legitimately scared for the physical safety for these girls. And so we're going, and it's legitimate fear, and we're going to literally build a security wall between the rubber plant and the orphanage. And to do that, we need to hit about $30,000 in complete total giving, and 10% of that going away, $3,000 in James, will take care of those two needs. Dollars in India for bricks and mortar go a long way. And then we're going to give 10% of our, of our income here to the Smoky Mountain Children's Home. And we're going to invest again in bricks and mortars in, in, the, in the cottages that these kids live in many of whom have been kicked out of their home or removed by, from their home by the state because of alcohol and drug use, and they live in these cottages that for the first time parents have conversations with kids that aren't screaming, and they're being nurtured and loved by Christian godly people, and they're opening God's word together, and they're praying together, and that kid gets valued on a level that he or she has never been valued, and we're going to go into one of these cottages and just do a redo. So 10% of our 30000 is going to go there. And then the other 10% of the 30%, <laughs> we're just out of room. Truth is, the, the growth of our church is handicapped because we don't have enough space. Second service is crowded. All of our kids' spaces are crowded. And for a relatively small investment, we can begin to increase our space. Long before we go into the next building phase, because we're not ready, we've got we to gotta rebound. We can make some changes that will increase our capacity, and I'll show you those over the next few weeks. So 30% investing in kids, and then the remaining 70% we're going to invest just in this place, literally to just try to end the year in the black, but mostly to set us up for next year because we can't have another year like this. It, it's been okay. We've survived it. Thank you, Jesus. But God didn't call us to survive. God called us to thrive. He called us to invest in families. He called us to reach out into this community. The 150,000 cars a day that pass by the front of our building, each one of them val are valued to God. They're, they're valued by God. They have significant value to God. And, and we have a unique capacity to reach out that we haven't been able to explore yet. In 2014, it's going to be a banner year for us. And it's going to bring major glory to God. 
And not just in your family, but in families of neighbors you have, God is going to do his work of restoring and building hearts, building lives. And our church is going to be a big part of that. Which means we've got to start the year strong and put this thing behind us, this get in the building thing behind us, and then move on with the ministry God has called us to do. So in our family, here's what it's going to look like. Whatever is the most expensive gift we give, and I'm not going to tell you that because my kids will listen and and they already know, but whatever's the most, we're going to give an equal amount of dollars here. Is it easy? No. But we're going to do it as a family. We're going to talk about it because we believe this is a good place to invest. I believe the thing that God put on my heart and the original group of people that started this church is still very much alive. Our Heavenly Father is calling people back to Him, but not just doing that, He's restoring families. And I think that's worth investing in. And I think your gift of money over the next few weeks could have an impact, not just on the here and now in bricks and mortar, in our building at the Smoky Mountain Children's Home or in India. I think it could have an impact on the hearts and souls of people in a way that will impact eternity. They say you can't buy happiness, but let me tell you what you can buy with money. Impact. More and more as I get older and older, that makes me happier and happier. When I spend it on myself, not so much. Sometimes, yes, but not so much. But when I invest it in other people, and I want you to prayerfully consider what you can give to our 2013 year-end Christmas gift. We need to hit $30,000 total. And anything above and beyond that, we'll just split at the same ratios. 30% out, 30% investment into kids, and then the rest remaining right here to invest in us, to set us up, to get past this sluggishness that we've had to operate in. A lot of you don't even know that. You know why? Because we have incredible people, an incredible team who just serve, serve, serves, and sacrifice and sacrifice. That can't continue. We literally need to invest money and dollars into the ministry here. And I think it's worth it. I think your family's worth it. I think fighting for your family, like I'm trying to fight for my family here, is worth it. So let's do this. Let's take out our connect cards and let's take a few steps together as a congregation. So as you're doing that, let me just tell you, um, I have prayed for you and I've prayed for myself because God's doing something special and I don't want you to miss it. And so coming and being stirred, coming and being impressed, coming and hearing and listening, that's a certain level of engagement. But actually moving forward to do something, that's the game changer. So, here's our first next step. If there's anybody in the room that would say, Ben, I don't know a relationship with Jesus like you're talking about. I don't have a relationship with Jesus. You can check next step A and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior for the very first time. When you do that and you put the card in the offering bucket when it comes by the end of the service, you're not joining our church. You're not even committing to give money or even give to the Christmas gift. We just want to send you some information about what a relationship with Jesus looks like and how much the heart of your Heavenly Father that has pursued you, how much that can mean in your life. We just want to resource you with some information. How about next step B? I want to go public. And baptism around here this year has been incredible. Rather than doing one or two big ones, we've just done them almost every month. You know, a small handful of people getting baptized. It's going to be our biggest baptism year ever. It's pretty incredible what God's doing around here. If you haven't yet been baptized, let us know. We want to communicate with you, answer your questions. All you got to do is check next step B, put the card in the offering bucket, and it comes by. How about next step C? Listen, listen to me, moms. Listen to me, dads. This, this might be you. 
I'm going to find one way that I can fight for my family. I've been fighting with a lot, but I believe my family is worth fighting for. And I want to turn that, that preposition from with to for. Maybe it's around that creating that, in that tone where, where, where everybody knows they're welcomed and wanted. Maybe it's just getting the eternal perspective on the challenges you're faces, facing. In five years, this will not matter, but you will matter in five years. In fact, you will matter for eternity. And just check that back. as a commitment of honesty and integrity in yourself, and then let us pray with you about that. How about next step D? As a family, we're going to be giving to the 2013 year in Christmas gift. I mean, you don't need to know what yet. Just, I'm going to. I'm on board. Just check that. You don't know how encouraging it is to our team to hear that people believe this place is worth investing in. All right, how about next step E? Each day this week, I'm going to pray this prayer. God, help me remember that 100 years from now, the only thing that will matter to the people I love is their relationship with God or with you. God, help me. And praying that prayer all week long. Let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. God, all of our families have challenges. And every person in this room, every one of us are imperfect. And God, in the middle of that confusion and chaos, your voice is loud and clear. Your heart is very obvious. You want to bring us together. And so, Lord, I pray for the families in this church. I pray for the moms and the dads and their relationship. I pray for the single moms who are doing it on their own. God, just lift them up. I pray for the single dads. I pray, Lord, for those that have experienced pain on levels I can't even imagine. God, you're the healer. But God, most of all right now, I pray that you would fix our minds, that our families are worth fighting for. That 100 years from now, very, else, very little else is going to matter other than you and your agenda in our lives. I pray this all in the strong and holy name of Jesus, the wonderful Son of God. Amen and amen.